Welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. On this podcast, we explore ideas that apply to every single one of our lives by talking to people who experience those ideas in an extreme environment. It's once again going back to the beginning. It's answering your instincts, and your instincts will tell you to go on or go back. The important thing, I think, is always to listen to them. If you think about what it means, it's scary. So for me, it's the same. It's, it's, it's scary on the beginning. Then you start to, to plan on it and just take piece by piece, and then you figure out there are solutions. So you know, maybe it's possible. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. On January 31st, the American Alpine Club had their annual benefit dinner in New York City. This is one of the largest and most anticipated events that they host throughout the year. There are legendary climbers in attendance and also speaking. There were three different presentations and panel discussions that were on the morning and afternoon before the dinner in the evening. What you're about to hear is the first of these events. Adventure journalist James Clash will be interviewing world-renowned high-altitude mountaineers Sir Chris Bonington and Uli Steck. If you would like to hear the other two discussions, one of which is a panel discussion on Mount Everest with notable guides and Sherpas, and the other is a presentation from professional rock climber Sasha DeJulian, you can go to our website, mtnmeister.com, where you'll find those episodes and also all of the 100-plus other Mountain Meister episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Just search MTN Meister, and you can find us there. Beautiful, right? <laughs> hey, folks. I'm Paul Powers from the American Alpine Club. Welcome. We have a, a special treat for you this morning. Uh, we're going to do a little interview. I'll bring uh, our interviewer up in just a moment. But as you can see, we've got uh, uh, personalities from a couple of generations here today. I won't go into the res- resumes in great detail of Uli Steck and Chris Bonington, but I will say that, uh, interestingly, Chris Bonington climbed the north face of the Eiger in 1962. Mm-hmm. Not so long ago, really, when you think about it. Uh, and then here a little bit more recently, in 2008, Uli followed in his footsteps, did something similar uh, in a slightly faster time. I think it was two hours and 47 minutes. How long it was did it take three you? days to one and a half hours. There we go. <laughs> and I think I think we can do a similar analogy on Annapurna, where you were on the South Face. Well, that took took a couple of months. And Uli <laughs> took a number of 
units of measure, but those units of measure were ours and there were 28. Uh, I'd like to bring up Jim Clash, a long time and well known author to, Thank you, Phil. to run the show for us and uh, have a little conversation with these great guys. Thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to thank uh, everybody for coming out. Whoever brought this weather to New York, we're not used to this kind of cold, so I think it came in from the mountains, all you climbers. Um, and also, I want to thank uh, you all for coming out at 10 o'clock, because when we were planning this event, there was consternation about whether we should start at 10. People didn't think anyone would show up. And I said, I think when you've got Chris Bonington and Uli Steck, they're going to come whether it's midnight or whatever. Um, I think um, a lot of you know me from the Explorers Club. I do something called the Exploring Legends series where I interview people like Uli or Chris one-on-one, -on -one, and then we have audience questions afterwards. That's what I'm going to do today. Uh, it's unusual to have two people, but I'm sitting between them because I don't want any fights to erupt between the old guard and the new guard. So, But, um, but here we're going to talk about uh, a lot of things, not just climbing, but I'm going to try to get personal with some of these guys. Um, the first question I'm going to ask is to Chris, Sir Chris, and I've always wanted to know, Chris, how do you get knighted? What's the process? <laughs> Sir Chris, did you know about it? Well, I think when they, you never know about these things, and what happens is someone's rooting for you in the background, and I should imagine in my case it was the British Mountaineering Council, which is a bit like the American Alpine Club, but it represents all the clubs in Britain. And um, they would actually put up a proposal to this uh, invisible body that's, um, in fact, in 10 Downing Street. It's um, the, the, the honours thing is political as opposed to the gift of the Queen. And, um, and so they decide then what honours are they going to give. And the, the recipient, you get a letter that turns up, in my case, it was um, sometime in the autumn, saying, would I accept a knighthood? Well, it'd be churlish to refuse, wouldn't it? <laughs> and, um, but you didn't know. It just came in the mail. It just comes in the mail, yeah, and I knew absolutely nothing about it at all. And I said, yes, please. And, uh, and then you... Uh, they have a whole series of, um, of ceremonies through the year, because they give out about four or five hundred, and there's different levels, and it's usually, in fact, um, the British that you can be a, a knight commander of the British Empire, commander of the British Empire, going down to a member of the British Empire. And, uh, of course, we haven't really got an empire any longer, but don't <laughs> let that worry you. And, um, <laughs> but when you get a knighthood, you can get, I mean, levels of knighthood. England, we are a class-ridden kind of hierarchical society and, uh, and the, the level and I'm a, a, just a plain knight bachelor and that's at the absolute bottom whereas if you're a knight commander of the bath or something like that that's much grander so anyway you arrive at Buckingham Palace and uh, there's about probably a hundred people who are going to get an honour that day and you go in kind of order of precedence so the knights come first and I remember I had three the three of us who were getting knighthood. And one was a general, and thank goodness he went in first, and it was the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, who was actually giving him out that day. He shares it with his mother. And you, you kind of walk in, 
And I remember I, I kind of hesitated. I'd clean forgotten what I was meant to be doing. And then Prince Charles, very nice, and he kind of just get a little pat. And, uh, and, and so you go up, and, and then there's a footstool, and you kind of put one knee on it so you, you're down low enough. And then he draws his sword, and he taps you <laughs> once, twice, thrice. And then you get up, and then you have the insignia, uh, which is a kind of nice badge that you hang around, he hangs around your neck and he shakes your hand. And um, I'd met him a couple of times before, and in actual fact, ooh, just ooh, about a year before, I'd very nearly got killed on one of his mountains, Loch Nagar, which is on the Balmoral Estate. And he knew about it because I was meant to be opening... Um, an exhibition for a charity that I'm president of in London that the Queen was coming to, and I couldn't go there that because I was actually kind of in plaster, and so she, and she's never let me forget it either. <laughs> but anyway, so, so that's how that's how it happens. So we call you Sir Chris. No, no, just plain Chris. Thank okay. you very much. Um, one more question, then I'm going to go over to Uli. But but look, you know when you. You did the north face of the Iger, was it 62? Yeah, that's right. You did the south face of Annapurna in 70? You yeah. led that expedition? Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, would you have ever thought that this guy on my left could climb up and down the north face of the Iger in under three hours, and he could do the south face of Annapurna in 28 hours up and down? I mean, it's almost insanity. No, I mean, you, no, certainly then there's no way one could have imagined it. But, I mean, I think the wonderful thing about climbing, about all human activity, is that each generation stretches the boundaries each time and realises you can do more and more. And that's what Uli's done, and it's at the absolute, you know, peak of that form of very, very fast climbing, which arguably is actually the safest kind of climbing. Um, the longer you're on a mountain, the more likely it is that people are going to die. And so the, the Big Siege-style expedition, I know from my experience, I mean, sadly, on three m- of my expeditions, yes, I've lost dear friends. And it's partly because you're on it, you're exposed to risk for such a long time. Whereas you go in really fast and you know what you're doing like Uli does, that risk level actually is lower. That's one way to look at it. Yes, I'm going to get... Yeah. You go ahead, respond. I just, I think you're totally right. It's just like, as much as you're pushing it to the, to the speed. You know, if if the, sp- if the speed is uh, uh, too high, then it gets riskier again. But there is a level which you can be really efficient and really safe. So you you don't spend too much time on the mountain, but you're still moving just safe. I mean, if you do it like what I did on the Eiger in two hours forty-seven, I think this is this is taking a lot of risk on the end. But if you're doing the Iger, I think in three and a half hours, this is like totally safe. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) All right, look, you you did the south face of Annapurna up and down in 28 hours, and and we've talked about this. Um, When you got done, I mean, this is something you really wanted to do. You said you went through kind of a depression or... uh, uh, a time when you couldn't train, you, you, you couldn't figure out how you could top that. You know, tell us about that, what it was like after you did it. I mean, obviously it's elation and all that. And what is next for you? You know, it's, it's kind of like if you're living in that, you, you, you try to progress in your, in your climber's life. Like, you, you want to do it. Like, I started with this 
feet ascents in the Alps and for me it was just normal I wanted to bring that to the Himalaya and and, and you keep going and it's always a step more for climbing and then on certain moment like for me on Annapurna I know exactly how much risk I accepted and how how I pushed it to the edge so so you realize ah, that's maybe that's maybe the top of my of my climbing I can't move on otherwise I'm gonna kill myself and and this is a really hard moment like to tell like hmm, you're 38 years old and maybe you should get retired that's that's a little <laughs> bit early so so it gives you kind of like a hole so what what you want to do next is kind of like you're losing the point of of climbing and of, of alpinism so I really have to adjust my whole uh, whole approach to climbing completely different like it, it doesn't have to be always much higher or much faster it, it just yeah, I just have to measure it like differently for, for myself, just to not lose the joy of climbing. When we spoke uh, at the uh, 92nd Street thing, you told me you had talked to Ed Webster about something uh, that you were interested in. Uh, it was on Everest. Did that ever uh, go anywhere? I mean, that's top secret. <laughs> well, it's just <laughs> us. You know, nobody's listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I, it's I mean, strict confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as journalists, we get to. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that yeah, before yeah. about journalists. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly. There is always something to do. Sometimes you need a little bit of time, and then you figure out what you can do next, and you get motivated. And then, I, especially Ed, he just showed me a line on Everest, which is really, really interesting. And just, yeah, there's still stuff to do, but for sure. In that style, like I climbed Annapurna, it's okay. I have to stop that. That's not gonna. Your wife told gonna, you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Also, myself. I know if you, if you keep going like this, I mean, I was really lucky. I accepted a lot of risk, and um, and to climb this style, this this works out maybe once in your lifetime. If you do it twice, the chance that you you fall down is, is really high. So you really have to to play uh, smart and and just back up from that. Chris, um, you know, you did a lot. You led a lot of big climbs, uh, as well as climbed. Uh, you know, he's pretty much a solo guy. Talk a little bit about um, what it's like to lead an expedition, the fears and responsibilities. It's really tough on the leader because he's not only got to climb, but he's got to manage everything. Talk a little about those big expeditions you did. Sorry, I've just got sleepy now. <laughs> um, I think well, I think it's fun, it's funny. I, I mean, the first expedition I ever led was the South Face of Annapurna, and I'd been on two Himalayan expeditions before in 1661 on Annapurna to Nutsi. And then at that stage, and in the mid 1960s, there was a kind of a, a moratorium in that the there's the Indo-Pak War and there's the Indo-Chinese War. And as a result of these two wars, the whole of the Himalayas, Nepal, was completely closed to climbing. So there was a gap. And at that time as well, I was actually, I'd moved from the Lake District down into Cheshire to be more actually closer to my climbing mates who all lived around the peak. And there's a little group of us who were living in a suburb of Manchester called Bowdoin. And we, we kind of went climbing together, played squash together, played bridge. And, uh, and our kids were about the same age, all at primary school. And, uh, and we talked and we dreamt of going climbing. But there was, you couldn't get to the Himalayas. But also, no one was actually prepared 
to take the initiative to lead an expedition. We even talked about talking to Michael Ward, who was the doctor on Everest in 1953. Let's see if he'll lead us. And Michael very, very sensibly said, no, thank you very much. And then it, 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 I, I just realised that unless someone did something, we'd never get there. And so I said, OK, let's go for it. And um, Jimmy Roberts, who was the leader of my Annapurna II expedition, he was uh, an army officer, his military attaché in Kathmandu at the time, but he was also a, a, a very good pre-war Himalayan climber. And he sent me this photograph of the south face of Annapurna. Now, that's it, let's go for it. And we did it entirely on that one photograph. <laughs> and, uh, and then it kind of just took off. Um, I realised, I mean, it was a, a modestish team. The, the team we had was um, eight climbers and two people more in a support role. We only had six high-altitude porters because it was so steep. We reckoned that the Sherpas wouldn't be able to cope with load carrying on that kind of terrain. But then we, we got the full support of the Mount Everest Foundation and we had an agent, and, uh, and everything else. And so it escalated. And I, th I very quickly realised that, that the key thing in these, if you like, you couldn't think of anything but a seed-style expedition back in 1970, and um, was logistics, getting your planning right, getting everything right. So there was a year of incredibly hard work just getting everything together to actually go on the mountain. And then... The challenge of leadership with that kind of group is actually, let's face it, all of your lead climbers are ambitious individuals and climbers are individualists. <laughs> and is actually to get them to work together and also work together probably, as it happened here, it was getting perhaps only two of their number to the top. And whether it's Ed Hillary and Sherpa Tensing or in this case Don Mullins and Dougal Haston, they're the people who get all the glory. But unless everyone else is prepared to put them there, it just doesn't work out. And so, yeah, and I made a huge number of mistakes on that expedition, but I learned an awful lot about it as well. Well, you guys got to the top. You're, you're climbers, so you're successful. This is Mountain Meister, and you're listening to an interview presented during the American Alpine Club's 2015 benefit dinner in New York City. If you like interviews such as these, we have a library full of 100-plus episodes with some of the top athletes in rock climbing, mountaineering, ultra running, and more. You can listen to it all for free at our website, mtnmeister.com, or subscribe to our podcast on the podcast app, iTunes, or virtually any other podcast platform. Uli, um, you climb solo you don't use ropes uh, the ultimate uh, I mean if you slip you're dead um, talk about how you handle that before talk about fear first of all how do you handle fear and then and how do you go out and just do this are there times when you turn around and say I, I can't do this it's it's too much so let's let's start start with fear yeah. I think fear is something really really important and by the way what just kidding go ahead <laughs> go ahead <laughs> No, I think if you lose the fear, you're going to die immediately. I think that's really, really important. If you're not scared, you just just do maybe stupid things. So I think this is something really, really important for me. And, and when, when I prepare something like a climb, of course, I think about, uh, even right now, I could think about climbing, I don't know, let's say 
Everest South Face solo in in a single push. It's it's a really interesting thought, and I think it would be a great project. That, but if you think about what it means, it's scary, you know. So for me, it's the same. It's 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 scary on the beginning. Then you start to to plan on it and just take piece by piece, and then you figure out their solutions. So you know, maybe it's possible. It's it's three thousand meters that's possible to climb in a day. So you, you put it all together and then it gets a structure and then you lose the fear because you know how you're going to handle the whole thing and then, then the fear is gone. And I think that's a really, really important process. And if, if that process does not happen, I'm not going to climb. So that's, that's really important. And then you really have to, to be able to make your own decisions. That's something that is really, really important in this case. If, you're, if you climb and you have influence from, from outside, maybe that pushes you or whatever, then it's super dangerous. That's something I always keep, I keep nobody informed because it's, it's pretty easy. If you're up on the mountain and you have cold feet, you make your decision and you say like, oh, let's go down and no one lose any toes. But if you think about in this moment, how you explain the people down there why you turned around, then you have already influence and you, maybe you keep going. So that, that's super dangerous. That's something, it's just a, a system you have to have just to protect yourself, not pushing too far. So as long as you make your own decisions, I think you're, you're on the safe side. And I think that's very important. Have you found uh, times when you said, uh, I'm not going to do this or oh. turned around? I've, I've been so many times on the Eiger North Face, which I know really well, I climbed it 37 times, but I'm at least 20 times I was up there on the base of the route and I saw like, ah, today the conditions are not what I was expecting and it's not, I don't know, you cannot explain it, but it's, you don't feel it and then you go back down. And I think that's very important. You really have to find these moments where you feel it, that's the day and it's working. And, and if you're in that zone, I think it's it, you make the right decisions and you're safe. It's kind of like you have to listen to your stomach, and that's a feeling you cannot explain. I think, but it's always right. That's, I'm co totally convinced. You're still here. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, to you, um, Sir Chris. Uh, fear. How do you deal with fear? And uh... well, I, th I think it's very similar to Uli. I think one of and I totally one of the really important things is never ever climb with a fearless person because it'll get you killed and so that it, and one of the important things as well is getting that balance between having the determination to push on but also of knowing when to turn back and I think it comes down very often to an absolute gut instinct but that gut instinct is actually based on experience and all the years you've had being exposed to risk and danger. But sometimes, and I don't know whether Uli's done this, but I've just, you know, things have looked really good, and yet I've just got this feeling that, no, this isn't good, I want to go down. And, and I've always listened to it and retreated. And at other times, when things look as if they, they can't possibly work out, in fact, at the beginning of one of the best two days climbing I've ever had, I think, was when... Um, we went to do the, the Walk of Spur of the Grand Jurassic in 1961, no, 1962, with Ian Clough. 
And we, we arrived at the bottom, we bivouacked, which is quite a standard thing, in, at the very bottom, and we're setting out the ne- next day. And there were about 16 other people also bivouacked, and a big, massive cloud came rolling in. And they all went down, but I just had the feeling that it's okay. So we went for it, and we, we climbed in about six, seven hours. Not in Ulystad, but it was fast for me. And we got to the, to the top at about um, three o'clock in the afternoon, and then it was just such a fantastic day. We decided, well, no, we, we're not going we, to... We, firstly, we, we weren't going to go down. We just didn't want it to finish. So we bivouacked on the top, and then the next day, we did the complete traverse of the Gondras Ridge, the Rochefort Ridge, all the way to the Torino Hut. And that was one of the most wonderful days climbing I've ever had. Technically quite straightforward climbing, but the wonderful movement of it. We reached the Torino hut, and our plan at that stage was the day after that, we were going to go and do the route major onto Mont Blanc. But that night I suddenly realised the north wall of the Eiger must be in condition. And so I woke up in at about um, five o'clock in the morning, and he didn't thank me, and said, look, I've had a brainwave. Let's go and do the Eiger. And two days later, we were at Alpiglen, which is the little farm just below the north wall of the Eiger. And we went and did the Eiger. And, okay, we did it quite leisurely. I mean, it was the standard thing. You kind of go up in the late afternoon. We bivouacked on the swallow's nest. And then the next day, we got up to... We were moving fast, or relatively fast, by our standards, and got up onto the Travers of the Gods by three in the afternoon, Afternoon snowfall had, or stonefall had started because the sun then hits the face. So we stopped. And then the next morning, uh, we went for it again, and it was absolutely safe. And that bivouac that night on the end, on the Travis of the Gods, was just magic. And then we, we soloed the rest and got to the top. But, you know, there was no... In those days, one didn't have the pressure of doing it very fast. It was just doing it. And uh, so that, that is, I mean, I'm, I've rambled a bit, but that to it's me okay, is, like what, is what yeah. climbing's all about. But I think it is. It's, it's once again going back to the beginning. It's answering your instincts, and your instincts will tell you to go on or go back. The important thing, I think, is always to listen to them. Well, I'm going to stay with you. You probably recognize this book. It's called The Seven Summits. It was written by Dick Bass. A dear friend, Wells. And this is a this guy is pretty prescient because this was his cover quote. A grand job. It's going to cause a revolution in the boardrooms of the US as countless executives relate to Frank and Dick and take off on far flung adventures. It certainly brought me some wonderful memories of Vincent. Now of course you you were on Vincent with, with Dick and Frank in nineteen eighty three, your first time to Antarctica. Uh, they brought you down to guide them. Uh, I know you're friends with Dick. But that quote turned out to be 100% correct. The guiding services, all of, probably a lot of people in this room were influenced by Dick Bass and Frank Wells. They happened to be at the point where people were saying, yeah, I want more than just another boat or a house in the Hamptons. I want an experience. And they proved that you could do it. Talk a little bit about how you knew at that point obviously, that this was going to happen. And what you think about it, is it a good thing or a bad thing that it's happened or a mix? Well, I, I suppose it was the, the, the lucky chance that I'd met up with Dick and Frank when they were actually doing their, um, their kind of preliminary expedition on the north face of Everest um, back in um, 
82. It'd be 82, wouldn't it? And yeah. then when we were t attempting the Northeast Ridge. And I got to know them then a bit. And then when they were planning their, their extreme, it was an extraordinary thing, actually, for these two guys who weren't climbers to decide not just we're going to do the Seven Summits, because nobody had ever thought of doing the Seven Summits at that stage, but we'll do it in a year. And they flung money at it. I mean, I, th I think they spent at least a million pounds, didn't they? Maybe more. But the biggest problem of all, to a degree, was getting into Antarctica, because at that time, the, the governments, whether it's the British Antarctic Survey or the American equivalent, were very, very firm that they did not want to have these scatty adventurers wandering all over Antarctica. Still don't. And, they, they, and Frank and Bit Dickon asked me along, not to be a guide, but they thought I might have influence with the British Antarctic Survey to get refuelling facilities at Rothera, which is a base on the Cumberland Peninsula, and they needed that refuelling to get to actually Vincent itself uh, with their plane. I failed. I, I, I didn't manage to persuade them. They were nice enough to take me anyway, and there was um, just two of us um, who were going to you know, look after them, and I suppose be semi-guides to actually take them up, but that's how it all started. But I think just seeing that these two rich guys were actually also, they were employing guides in a Himalayan circumstance. And then, of course, in 1985, when um, Dick finally did get to the top of Everest, in effect, it was David Brashears who, who guided him to the top with a small group of Sherpas. So that was the start of it. And, uh, and I suppose, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten all about that, but I suppose, yes, I had seen the possibility. Did you invest in that possibility? Uh, no, I've never, I've, I've never kept, and I've never wanted to be, I'm, I, I'm an awful guide, I mean, even, I mean, on Vincent, it was, I, I still feel a bit guilty, because, unfortunately, Frank, um, he was, he was the president of Disney, but he was the clumsiest man I have ever climbed in. We heard that. And, um, but anyway, the day we went for the summit, it was, it was a very cold day and a bitter wind. And I suddenly noticed that Frank's nose, it was absolutely, he had a huge conch of a nose, and it was white. And I could put my hand on it, it was absolutely frozen solid. And so I told Frank, I said, look, you know, I think if we go on, you won't die, you'll get to the top, but you might lose your nose. And he decided he wanted to keep it. So, <laughs> have, uh, you know. so he turned back, and then Dick, who's an absolutely lovely guy, said, gee, Frank, well, if you're going down, I'll go down with you. But to me, you know, when you're just three or four hundred, five, five hundred foot maybe, be below the top of a mountain, and it's a walk to the top, I said, well, look, do you mind if um, Rick, Ridgeway and myself, if we just go to the top, but don't worry, we'll just make sure we've got it in the bag, and then we'll stay with you and make sure you get to the top later on. And uh, they agreed to that, so I don't think very willingly. But, and, and then we went off, and then Rick had been doing... Um, <coughs> a trip in New Guinea just before this, and he picked up a horrible bug, so he faded. And so I found myself going to the top of Vincent all by myself. And it was, a, it was the most fantastic experience. I think. One of the great experiences I've had, which was mixed with huge guilt that I'd left all these characters behind, an immense satisfaction just standing there on the top of Antarctica, and there's no sign of them, there's no sign of anything. And I think, well, I'm sure there's lots of people who've been up to the top of Vincent here. It is a very special place. And then you, obviously, they went up later and they made it. And they made it. And yeah. we, and I went down, I kept my promise. I mean, 
Frank Wells was absolutely convinced that uh, this was a, a dark kind of English Machiavellian plot to actually stop them getting to the top. But I, I actually kind of went, I had to go down back to the plane because it was a matter of keeping them supplied. And Giles Kershaw, the pilot, and I then ferried up supplies to them. We left them in a safe camp until at last the weather improved and they, they got it, they went to the top. Um, Uli, uh, I, I know there are all kinds of uh, schools and camps about speed climbing and everything, but you explained it very well to me when we last spoke. Uh, you said there's not that much difference between climbing the north face of the Eiger in two hours and 37 minutes and two hours and 23 minutes or whatever. But there's a big difference between climbing the north face of the Eiger in, say, two, two or three hours <coughs> and two days. And how does the speed climbing help you on the big peaks like Annapurna? I think it's, yeah, we, I mean, all these, like, records or whatever, I think it's just, it's just, uh, the journalists love that. And, but I think it's not, it's not, it's not the point of, if you climb the Eiger North Face two hours 47 or two hours 40 minutes, you cannot compare it. It's not a... I mean, alpinism is not a, a, it's not a competition, but I think that the fact that we are able to climb the Eiger North Face about three, three and a half hours, it's, it's a huge difference to, to be able now to move that efficient compared like having one or two days. And I think this is, this is the whole thing that's going to change in the future as well. So uh, we, we, we talk about big mountains, you know, I, I talk to to Kilian Jorne, who's, who's that ultra runner, who's, I mean, he has a, he has a physiology that's, like, insane. I, I wish I would be as strong as he is, like, running. But, that's really saying so. But it's, it's, it's really interesting, like, the approach he's doing. He told me, like, listen, I mean, going to climb Mount Everest, for example, you can start in the village. It's not so far from, from Lukla to go, I mean, that's, that's not even a day to go to base camp and then go to the mountain, it's another day, and then two and a half days later, you're back in Lukla. So it means it gives a completely different mindset on climbing. You don't need any Sherpas, you don't need a lot of equipment, and it's, it's, it's basically back to pure climbing. And I think all this speed, it just makes it much more simple and, and just open new, new, new ideas. And then if we, we look a lot around like the big problems in, in the Himalaya, which is like, let's say, the west face of, of, uh, of Makalu or uh, the horseshoe in um, Everest, Lhotse, Nubse Traverse, I think that's, that's a matter of being efficient up there. It doesn't matter if you take two days or two and a half days, but it's, it's a matter if, if it would take like a week or just two days because you cannot recover up there. So I think we have to put it a little bit in this this direction, what it means, like the speed climbing, and what is possible. But it really helps you up there because it eliminates, the, the longer you're up there, the more tired you get, and also the more danger from avalanche or other things, right? So the fact that you can move quickly up there helps you a lot, and it's, in some ways, saves, it, it saves your life. Of course, and it makes it much more simple, and, and my goal is actually, I try to be able as move with as less equipment as possible. Like, if I'm able to climb the Eiger North Face up and down without, without any, using any equipment, that's a, huge, that's, like, like, that's a huge progress because I don't have to carry anything. And it's, a lots of, it's just, just based on your skills. And I think that, that's really interesting on the end. And it, it, it just changed the whole game on, on, on the fact. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. 
uh, <coughs> Reinhold Messner just came in. Reinhold, can you stand up? He's our keynote speaker tonight. And, and I had a lovely chat with him at his Fermian uh, Mountain Museum back in September. Robert Anderson and I went over. And um, I want you to tell me, what, why is Reinhold Messner considered the greatest mountaineer? No pressure. <laughs> no, you put me in a difficult situation. <laughs> no. I mean, I, when you look what he did, he, he went new ways. I was like, Climbing Everest without oxygen, everybody was saying it's not possible, but he made the step. He tried it, and you have to be able to try it. And for me, like, he, he saw Everest, which was like, it's exactly the same what I'm doing now. It was just back in the days. It was not that efficient, and he didn't have the same equipment we have now, and climbing was not that developed right now, but it was exactly the same way. He started in base camp, climbed Everest and went back down without any support. And I think this made him the, one of the biggest climbers in, in the history of climbing because he, he was able to dream and think about out of the box and making the next step and, uh, and just try it. And what is the most important thing on, this ho on his whole career, now you're 70, yeah? That's like... He just turned 70, You just yeah. turned 70. He, he stayed alive. Exactly. He's got, <laughs> check his hair out. He's yeah. really got nice hair, no, too. But this is also something, it needs, it needs a lot of skills, like pushing in this, in this level and staying alive. There are so many good climbers, and they, they just did not have the feeling, maybe, and they just died, especially in, in his generation. Right. And even like the generation in the 1980s, all the good French climbers, they're all dead now. I think it's it's also a skill you have you need to have to stay alive. <laughs> Chris, you know what the next question is. No, <laughs> you're you're going to now tell us why Reinhold Messner is is the greatest living mountaineer. Now, you, well, I I have got the great pleasure and honor of actually introducing Reinhold tonight. Did you did you write it yet? No, I, I have thought about it, <laughs> and I, I think that so I I I am going to kind of keep my powder dry, and, and, and I'm looking forward to telling you all about it tonight. You are listening to Mountain Meister, and this is an interview by James Clash, adventure journalist, with high-altitude mountaineers Uli Steck and Sir Chris Bonington. There are two other presentations that were held this day. One is a panel discussion about Mount Everest with some notable guides and Sherpas. The other is a presentation from professional American rock climber Sasha DeJulian. You can listen to both of these on our website, mtnmeister.com, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app on your smartphone and listen on your way to work while you're running, or even while you're climbing a mountain. I'll ask you another question. You knew uh, one of the great uh, track stars, but you didn't know at the time, a guy named Sir Roger Bannister. Tell us a little story you told me yesterday, because when I interviewed Bannister, he told me the next big four-minute mile was the two-hour marathon. And we still haven't hit it, but he thinks that's the big thing. But tell us about your experience with Sir Roger. Well, I 
happened to meet him on top of a mountain called Ithloeth um, back in 1954, I think it was. And I was with a girlfriend, and we'd been doing Travis of Cribgoch Ridge, which is a lovely classic traverse around Snowdon. And towards the end of it, you come to Ithloeth, which is towards the end of the horseshoe, and overtook this other couple. And the, the girl I was with knew the other girl, and got chatting, and I was introduced to the guy who was a big gangly bloke. But he obviously wasn't a climber, so it couldn't be up to much. And, um, <laughs> and we then started down the hill. And in those days, I might not have been in Euless kind of league, but I was very fast running downhill. And I was very young, I was about, what, 18. And um, this guy kept on my heels. And so I ran as far as I've ever run so fast, all the way down the us, which is quite steep, grassy, bits of rock. And then when you come to the bottom, you've still got about two miles of rough terrain up and down, up and down, till you get back to the car park. And this guy still kept on my heels, but I kept, just kept in front of him all the way. And then we got to the car park, and then he, he said, and I thought that was a bit unsporting, he said, well, I had to hold back a bit, you know. I've got a big race in a couple of days' time. <laughs> now, I think that race was actually when he did the four-minute mile. That was 54, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that, so that... But I've never... And, and then it was actually only then that, that it, the penny dropped that this must be Roger Bannister, because he was already well-known as a runner. And I, I, I've met him several times since. We actually went to the same school, but he was older than me. And um, he's never admitted this. I've, I've reminded him, said, didn't we have that race? And he said, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, one other thing, you, you told me once you, you interviewed Neil Armstrong. Um, that took me 12 years to get him to give me four questions because he didn't do many interviews, but you got a nice interview with him. Tell me a little bit about Neil and what was that like? Well, I was, I was actually researching a, a book that um, I wrote. It's a book, actually, that I found the most satisfying I've ever written. It's when, and through that, I met Reinhold for the first time as well. And what I wanted to do was um, to meet and talk to what I felt were all the major innovators in adventure in the post-war period. And if you think of it, uh, since the sec at the end of the Second World War, there was a huge amount waiting to be done. None of the 8,000-metre peaks had been climbed. Um, OK, the South Pole and the North Pole had been reached, but they'd never been traversed. There's so much going on. And to me as well, part of this great adventure had to be reaching the moon. So I wanted to go and interview um, both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And um, so I got, and they both very kindly invited, agreed to being interviewed. And Armstrong at the time, he was, he's a very retiring, almost reclusive kind of person. They had this little office above, a, I think it was a real estate office in Lebanon, Ohio. And as I went in, and there he was sitting in this little office, and there was kind of music playing in the background. And he just seemed like a, another kind of businessman, and my heart dropped a bit. And we got talking, and I was already aware that he was different from all my other adventurers, in the sense that all the other adventurers had actually formed their own enterprise, their own adventure, and then pushed it through themselves. Whereas, of course, the astronauts were part of a huge national program that was inevitably kind of institutionalised. And at first, 
the, it was very stodgy. But then we got talking about when he'd been, before he got onto the astronaut program, through being an absolute top-line test pilot, of testing the the rocket planes. The X-15s. Yeah, that were flying, you know, into the the, the kind of upper part of the atmosphere. And he started talking about trying to find the envelope, the envelope of possibility. And he was pushing it to the absolute limit as well. And I suddenly realised, yeah, he is an adventurer. He is doing exactly the same thing as you and I do, but admittedly in a slightly more structured way. And I came away from that interview with a real big buzz. A buzz? Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, I was impressed by it. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to ask Uli Steck a question that you've always wanted to ask him. And pretend like there's nobody here. <laughs> <laughs> no. But there must be something you'd like to ask Cooley that would elucidate. I think, oh gosh, that is a challenge, actually. It's something because I, th- I think that, I mean, partly, I mean, I think I, I'm hugely impressed with what you do, but I'm also, I think I understand, you know, I think each of our generations have got to go that far. And I, I suppose, I mean, one question is do you think? As you get older, as I have, and you actually get to the point where, you know, you can't go on getting better and better, and that's if I assure you that kind of, in your 60s and going into your 70s, you go worse and worse. (laughs) And so how do you think you'll handle the, the progression of age? Would you, I mean, some sportsmen actually give it up altogether and go and do something else, or do you think you'll just carry on climbing or, or what? I think I, I love climbing too much, so I would go on on climbing. And I think that's the nice thing on, on, on climbing. You, you can go on, but I can't go on on this level. I have, I've done like five years ago or ten years ago. It's, that's over. That's normal. I'm 38. I don't have the same, same capacity anymore with my body. But it's nothing wrong with that. You just have to accept it. And uh, yeah, I, I, have a, I had a period where I really was scared that I completely give up climbing when I cannot progress anymore. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm over that now and I accept it. And I get inspired to see now all the younger generation, like what they take out of maybe little steps I have done and, and how it's progressing. And it's really interesting. And I'm pretty sure like the whole alpinism will, will change a lot in the future because uh, people start really like to train for alpinism and, and there is a lot of potential to do and I think it's, it's just nice to see that and you have just to take yourself not too important in life so then it's easier to accept that. Right. <laughs> 38. Oh, well you've got at least another 40 years. <laughs> I don't get it. Okay now the, the uh, opposite. You ask uh, Sir Chris uh, something that you've always wanted to ask. Uh, he, he mentioned it already like a little bit how I think it's it's really interesting how you like organize such a big expedition. I mean, the organization is something I can understand, but how you manage like the individuals uh, to work together uh, that that's something for me like it's kind of I don't know how you you did that back in the days. And I remember like the two guys who who went for Annapurna with they went with all the cargo. They barely make it to the mountain. 
uh, I mean, for them that must be really frustrating. And, and how you deal with all these characters? Like on the end that you're not like, yeah, on the end you had like two guys on, on, on Summit and they were the big heroes and then you have all the stuff behind. And how you manage that, that they still go and drink a beer together afterwards? Like that's kind of... It's like herding cats. Yeah. It, it, it is a challenge. But no, I think it's, it's actually, I think to be an effective leader, I think you, you have actually got to be quite manipulative. <laughs> and it, it's a matter of knowing what you can ask people to do. And um, <clears throat> one of the things you learn very quickly, <clears throat> and I think this applies to, to, to business, to armies and whatever, the moment you actually order someone to do something that they don't want to do, you've lost it. And you've actually got to find... And, and with climbers, you don't even begin. <laughs> um, so that it's a matter, really, of knowing what you can ask people to do. And say, on the south face of Annapurna, I mean, I knew that my two strongest pairs were, or two strongest people, were Dougal Haston and Don Willans. And they just naturally kind of moved to each other. And I let that happen, because I knew they were my best bet for actually getting up that mountain. But I had to give everyone else a turn out in front, and every pair out in front. But right in the middle of the expedition, there was a real crisis, because we were stuck, we weren't making any progress, we were running out of time. And it was the turn of some of the other guys to be out in front at that point. And I realised that they weren't going to get there, and I had to somehow get Don and Dougal up. In actual fact, I'd actually worked a really nice way of getting them up without making a fuss. And then Don, who was, um, was a kind of, yeah, he, he really put his foot on it every single time, and said, E, those are the boogers, they're not making any progress at all. This was over the open radio now. I think it's high time Dougal and I went straight up to the top camp. And... I agreed, I think I had to. And of course, then all hell let loose. But I managed to persuade them. But it is a matter of knowing the support climbers. You've got a group of climbers, but they actually do, even though they won't admit it, will, if they respect the, the, two, the stars within their team, they will actually get behind them. And so it's a matter of knowing what you can actually ask people to do. And the biggest sacrifice of all was... Ian Clough, because we had a big crisis. The, the boat that was carrying all the expedition gear had broken down in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and so that our gear was six weeks late in arriving in Bombay. And somehow we managed to scrabble together enough stuff to get started. And then I had to ask Ian Clough, brilliant climber. I mean, you know, he'd been with me on the north wall of the Eiger and in Patagonia. But I knew I could ask him to do anything because he was that kind of person. And so he went back to Bombay and accompanied all that gear right the way across India to get it to us as quickly as possible. And it's knowing the people, I'm afraid, who are prepared to make sacrifices, and you've got to use them. So you're a real psychologist. I think, I think any leader's got to be. Yeah. Uli, um, I always ask this question of, of people. When you got to the top of Annapurna, which is you know, kind of like Neil Armstrong getting to the moon. Um, what what were your feelings? Uh, was it relief? Was it, oh my God, i got to get down? Was it exaltation? What was it? I think it's 
for me, like, it's never like the big, wow, I'm on top or whatever. It's like you're too much into that, into the situation. It's not over yet. If you're on top of Annapurna, uh, you're not back down yet. And this was uh, actually the bigger part of the whole climb. So it's kind of like you think about, okay, I'm up there. Oh, so the next thought is like how I get down here. It's not like it's a big release. And that, I think it's something really, really important. I've done that all the time. Even like climbing the Eiger, where you know, like, if you climb the Eiger North face, the, the way down is just the West face, which is <coughs> not, it's, it's yeah. just yeah. easy. But you still have to concentrate yourself. And it's, it's a matter in your head. It's like the, the end of the climb is not the summit. The end of the climb is, is the valley back down. So, so it's just halfway. So once you're on top, like on Annapurna, for me, immediately I realized I'm, I'm up there and now I have a big problem how I get down here. And I have to get down in time because if the sun hits the face, all that ice I was climbing will melt and I'm trapped. I don't have enough equipment. So immediately it's like it's just switching to to the next step. So you're totally in that progress and uh, you just keep moving. Did you take some pictures up there? I didn't have a camera, so... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Chris, um, obviously you've been on Everest a number of times, I think four, and the same year Dick got up and... 85, uh, you made it. Um, talk about your feeling finally being on the summit. Was was it exultation? Was it uh, was it anything? What was it? It was um, it was a strange experience. I mean, having had what three times on Everest, but um, twice like leading a big expedition, and the third time on the northeast ridge of Everest. I mean, there were just four of us, and uh, two died, and um, two of us survived but um, I think when I finally got to the top with um, Ness's Norwegian expedition he'd got me in prime, partly out of friendship but mainly because the Norwegians had never actually climbed an 8,000 metre peak and hadn't done any big expeditioning and Arne wanted me, I basically did his logistics for him as his kind of chief of staff and it was fascinating and it gave me the chance of getting the top of Everest by the South Col route and it was a lovely expedition um, but on that final push, um, I was at that time amazing now that an 80-year-old has climbed Everest. Well, in 1985, <laughs> I was the oldest person to be going for the summit of Everest. Until Bass beat you a few... Yeah, about three weeks later. Yeah. He was five years you old. You were 50 at the time. I was 50, yeah. yeah. I was 50, and, and he was 55. So anyway, so I, I, I was struggling at the last bit. And I'll never forget, on the... Hillary's step, and we in the, the final bit on it. We were incidentally in '85. That was the last expedition that the Nepalese government had the rule that only one expedition could be on the route at a time, and it meant that we had the Western Coombe to ourselves. And there's an American expedition. Um, in fact, Rob Anderson is uh, here, who was on that expedition, and they were trying a very, very difficult route up the, the West Ridge of Everest. But anyway. Um, on that final push, we, 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 we climbed the whole thing solo, except we used a rope on the Hillary step, and that was all. And there were six of us, three Sherpas and three, two Norwegians and me. But I, I remember I, I got right to the back. The others were going much more strongly than me. And I got halfway up the Hillary step, and uh, I thought I'd had it. I'd, I'd just run out of steam. And then it was extraordinary. I suddenly realised that Doug Scott 
was actually floating in the air. It was absolutely realistic about there. And he was just quietly talking me up it. And he did. He talked me up the Hillary step, and so I got to the top and vanished. Now, I know, you know, that this wasn't an apparition. This was, you know, a trick that my mind had played to, to get me up that last little bit. And then, once you got up the Hillary step, it's dead straightforward. It's just a matter of one's tracks all there, and I was plodding up. And I just couldn't help thinking of um, the all-too-many close friends of mine who had either died on my expeditions or on Everest itself. And when I got to the top, I, I just collapsed and cried. And then it was only then slowly did I realise where I was. And, um, and then, you know, you, the view from the top, well, everyone who's been here, now, if you're looking at the on a lovely get there on a great day, it is one of the greatest views in the world. But then, as Uli said, you can't actually celebrate for too long because you've got to get down again. And more people die on the way down than never die on the way up. So I, I've never, I never relax until I'm actually not just in base camp, but everyone else is as well. And then you can start celebrating. Uh, I'm going to ask each one of you one more question, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. And uh, my first question in the audience is going to be Reinhold Messner. So Reinhold, think of a question to ask these guys, okay? Um, the commercialization of Everest, clearly... Uh, there's a, a pluses and minuses. The guide services, you know, make money, but then you have these horrible things like 16 Sherpas dying last uh, last year. Um, you had into thin air, uh, the disaster. Uh, people die. There are people on the mountain that aren't experienced enough. I'm going to ask you first, Chris. You told me this quite eloquently yesterday. What are some of the steps we can do to? to well, first of all, you've told me you're not interested. When people ask you about uh, climbing Everest, you tell them all this stuff and you tell them, but don't go to that mountain, and you'll tell us why. But what can we do? Well, I, I think, firstly, I mean, I think it's, it's an in absolutely inevitable development. I mean, there's been guiding in climbing ever since the start of the sport of climbing in the mid-19th century. And I think on Everest, though, it has got to a state where it's got into a kind of a volume which um, one could argue maybe should be controlled to a degree. But how you control it, I'm not at all sure. Um, if you ask, for instance, it, you, you could introduce regulations, say you could treat it like, say, it's treated in the Alps, where in France you, you must, if, if you're receiving money, the guide has got to be a fully qualified guide. It's only allowed two... Um, clients and so on. On Everest, you could argue that um, if you a trained the Sherpas up to be to be good guides, you also gave them real authority, and you also said one Sherpa, one guide to one person for commercial expeditions. You would actually you would reduce numbers because it start getting much much more expensive, and uh, and therefore there'd be less people. But on the other hand, if you do that you're cutting out an awful lot of people who can't afford huge fees. And, and my gut feeling, quite honestly, is that maybe just leave it as it is, because I don't think I trust the Nepalese authorities to actually run a system <laughs> like that. They're making a lot of money. And if you, if you say, well, OK, Everest is crowded, Everest is dangerous, and let's face it, one important thing to remember is climbing is dangerous. And I think everyone who sets out on 
a commercial expedition should understand that. And if things go wrong, and they inevitably will go wrong, there will be other huge accidents in the icefall. There will be other accidents in the Western Coombe because avalanches come down, and it's absolutely inevitable that those things happen. But if you just say, well, okay, let that be, and then have the, I think, the charm of the fact that, okay, Everest, and I'm afraid the other 8,000-metre peaks have become honeypots, if you actually don't like the crowds, there are so many mountains out there where there isn't anyone. And to me, what I love doing is just going and climbing unclimbed peaks. And now that I'm getting older and softer, I can still go and climb unclimbed peaks, and you can go and climb some obscure little 5,500-metre pimple at the end of a long valley where no-one's ever been before, and you can get huge personal satisfaction from that. But equally, I wouldn't deny... The individual who desperately wants to climb Everest is prepared to put up with the fixed ropes, with the crowds and everything else. And yet, when he finally gets there and he gets to the top, that is, firstly, it's a real achievement for that individual. And secondly, it's something that he will remember for the rest of his life. And so I think, to a degree with climbing, the safest thing is a laissez-faire approach. Let people make their choices and... Lead them to it. Very eloquently put. I, I don't even think I need to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you a different question. Will Gad up Niagara Falls, uh, you had uh, Tommy and Kevin on the El Cap, 19 days, uh, no uh, old protection. What, what, what is that? What do you think of that? I mean, are, are these amazing things that no one could have thought of years ago or... Uh, what is your opinion of that stuff? I mean, let's start with Niagara Falls. Yeah. I don't think it's a, it's, it's just a nice uh, media hype to climb Niagara Falls. It's nothing like new. It was just frozen and he climbed it, but it's not like a new standard. It's a really nice climb and it, 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 it's a cool climb. Compared to the climb Tommy did <coughs> with, on Kevin, El Cap, yeah. with Kevin, I mean, that's like, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a new, it's a new step. Climbing that hard, this kind of moves on a big face, it's it's never been climbed before. So that this this is completely something different. Like Niagara Falls is more it's of a kind stunt. Of, it's a it's a yeah it's a media thing yeah. and and of course they squeeze it out as well on on El Cap with the medias. But the the performance behind it is really interesting. And if you if you mention like first time they they tried it seven years ago, I think like being seven years driven and try again and again and again and even like just like this dino moves they tried it for years just to get it done and that's just two meters of a 900 meter face and just being able to focus on that it's like okay that's one step but we still have like uh, another 899 meters to climb or a 98 meters but this is something we, we need to do and I think this is really impressive for me can you can you climb a five fourteen D? I've climbed five fourteen D, but not fourteen D. Those guys did the D, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Could I could just make yes, one little addition. I, I think what intriguing is intriguing to me is that in a way, I think climbing at the moment is going is developed over the last few years actually in two strands. One strand is the adventure climb. 
what Uli does, what I do, what Reinhold does. Mm. But there is another strand that is developing, and I don't think one can denigrate it, and that is the sport climb. And the, the sport climb, and, and in a way, the LCAP climb is the ultimate sport climb. And it's where, in actual fact, the sport climber, I think I'm right in saying, is actually saying that what really matters to me is the athleticism of the climb and that the risk element is, is irrelevant. It's, it's something that gets in the Be- way. Because they're belayed. Because, well, no, they're, they're belayed. Right. And also, though, they are choosing where to go. And, no, the cap climb had loads of bolts in right. it. And they were basically... It was a sport climb. But the... <coughs> It's very important they're clear on that and that there, there are two strains that are going within climbing. And I think the one area that concerns me in sport climbing and the, the, the profuse use of bolts on so many kind of cliffs and crags now is that it's, it's man, it's us actually imposing ourselves on, on the mountain by saying, we can go anywhere because we can put our bolts in anywhere. And the trad climber is, is actually saying, well, now I'm going to respect the features of the mountain and I'm, going to, I'm not going to put in any bolts. I think one's put in pitons and that's gone a long way, but the person using pitons, it's still, they're following crack lines and that's the way most of the other cap routes were first made. But they are actually respecting that. And I think the frightening thing with too much sport climbing and the way it spreads, and certainly on the continent, an awful lot of beautiful classic routes, which were trad routes, have now been retro-bolted. And I think future generations are going to lose something from that. But I think it's important. They're both, they're two different sports almost. (laughs) And it's a matter of trying to find a way of being able to let each sport develop to the full without spoiling it for others. Reinhold Messner, do you have a question? I have a question for Uli. Uli. Reinhold, that's one I was afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so the question was, what was the real reason about this fight on Everest uh, in 2013 between me, Simone Moro, and, uh, and the Sherpas? Uh, the real reason, I, I don't really have like an answer for it, but I think the problem is like Everest is a really, really commercial mountain and there is a lot of money involved and a lot of people want to have their piece of the pie now and everything is everybody's protecting his own part of the pie and the situation was me and Simone we wanted to get climatized on the normal route which we had a permission for it and we wanted to climb uh, the Westridge and the Hornbein Couloir and then traverse to Lotse face but we were just climatizing on the normal route for that moment, so we, we didn't want to climb the normal route, for that's to be clear fine. And the situation was the the fixed ropes were not on place yet, and uh, 
So the Sherpa still had to put fixed ropes on in the lotse phase, which, uh, which, which is totally fine for me, but this is my, I mean, this is a, this is a ski slope. You don't need every fixed rope, so I can go up and down there like I want. And we had to go climatize there. So we were early. And that was exactly the day the team was fixing the ropes up to in the lotse phase. And we started climbing to get to camp three which Denis Rumko and Alexei Bolotov left us a tent because they were a night before sleeping up there and they left us a tent just to sleep high up there. And, and somehow the Sherpas didn't like that, that we go up there and they felt like we cannot go up the mountain. And my standpoint was like, I mean, if we go like 200 meters beside you, I mean, we're not going to affect your, your work and we just stop at, at camp three. So just do your work and let us doing our work. And somehow it was not, they did not like that and did not accept that. And then it get some, some uh, discussion about it. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's on low. YouTube. It's on YouTube and it's, it's kind of insane. But like the main reason it's really hard to, to say what is really the problem like why cannot be everybody individual on the mountain? So they're not official rules. If I have a permission to climb Mount Everest, uh, there is no rule on that permission that I have to wait until the Sherpas are up there or I have to wait until uh, the team from the others are on summit and then it's my turn to go. So uh, I think this is, this is kind of a big problem on that mountain. It's just too many people up there. Do you have a follow-up? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think it, you, because I'm not in the position to, to make it. No, I think generally that the young shelters are trying to get the market in their hands. Yes. But this was not the beginning of this fight. I think that the problem was that you crossed the iceberg, yes. you used the infrastructure done for the commercial expedition, and the shelters, the young shelters, they said, now we have a possibility to discuss this whole thing. That's yes. quite a permit, but you had no uh, infrastructure, no infrastructure on the ice wall, and you needed an infrastructure on the ice wall. And this was also the reason because Korupko tried to go around the ice wall, not using anymore the infrastructure of the uh, Yes. for the commercial expedition. This is the problem. I think this is a problem, but if, if, we, if we be honest, like Dennis, he was not allowed to go there because if you really follow the rules of Nepal, he was illegal on that side of the Kumbu Ice Fall. And if you want to do it legally, you have to go to the Kumbu Ice Fall, otherwise you don't get the permission. And we paid the Kumbu Ice Fall doctors, so they get the money for this part we were using. And I'm totally happy to pay there and I give them work because I think it's also important. We give them the Sherpas opportunities to work but higher up, there's no questions for me just to, to using this, uh, these things. So, yeah, it's... it's did, did the Sherpas and the organizers know that you paid the iPhone doctors? I mean, this is what you... Yes, for sure. They know, 100%. Because in my... In my yeah. The whole thing became uh, a problem because there were three interests. Yeah. The organizers of the groups, the, the Sherpas, the workers, and you as 
they are finished. And the, the key was not in the load surface, and the load surface is not, you don't need anything. But in the icefall, you need the infrastructure of somebody. Otherwise, you have to bring your own sherpas and to bring up. Uh, no, you can go through the icefall without using any infrastructure. It's, it's no problem, I think. You can climb yeah, through the icefall. You need, you need just a little bit longer. It's not that convenient. I was, uh, I was there twice uh, yeah. using the Everest expeditions for going to Lhotse in the time when it was not a <coughs> European expedition there. And both times I took a permit from Kathmandu, uh, from the government. I asked the leader of the Everest expedition to be allowed to go on the iceberg. And I paid especially the purpose uh, during this work. It's a, you get thousand dollars, we go through once and we use your infrastructure, thank you very much. And we had never a problem, but there were no any uh, commercial expeditions because they came on the later. Yeah. And I think that this was an opportunity for the young Sherpas, using also the organizers to begin the, the discussion. They would not like anymore anybody on the mountain. They, the young chapters would like to have the whole tech in their hand in the future. Yeah, I think it's their, their bill. Yeah. And they used you to, to begin this discussion. The discussion was a bad fight, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I knew what was the deal. We've, uh, that's the perfect segue. Thank you, Ryan Holt. <laughs> you can talk about that more tonight, Ryan Holt. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to. I can't thank you enough, Jim and Christian. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Mountain Meister. That was an interview at the 2015 American Alpine Club Benefit Dinner Weekend plenty more where that came from go to our website mtnmeister.com or go to the podcast app or soundcloud or stitcher radio or wherever else you'd like to listen to podcasts they make your commute to work or your skin up a mountain that much better if you're interested in learning more about the american alpine club go to their website americanalpineclub.org they explain all of the benefits of being a member, and they are extensive. As usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you have been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.